Would you believe that in the United States of America in the year 2020, a member of Congress is seeking the disbarment of Rudy Giuliani and the other lawyers who are representing President Trump in his attempt to overturn the election? Disbarring lawyers for representing clients? Pure McCarthyism. You'll hear why on The Der Show. So this is what it's come to in America. Believe it or not, a congressman from New Jersey, his name will live in infamy, uh, Representative Bill Pasquel Jr., has actually filed complaints against Rudy Giuliani and President Trump's other lawyers in five states seeking their discipline or disbarment. For what? for defending President Trump's right to a fair election, for raising constitutional issues, which some courts have accepted and some courts have rejected, some arguments better than others. The idea that you disbar or discipline a lawyer because you don't approve of that lawyer's client or you don't like the argument they're making, pure, unadulterated McCarthyism. Congressman Pascrell should be ashamed of himself, and his voters should let that shame be known the next time he runs for re-election. You know, it's one thing to criticize the lawyers. You can do that. You can argue that their points they're making are not valid. You can uh, support the opinions of the courts that reject them. All of that's fair game. But the idea of moving to disbar lawyers because you don't like their client, you know, maybe I'm a little biased on this because uh, there was a petition at Harvard to try to remove my status as professor emeritus, which I earned for 50 years of teaching in 10,000 students because I represented the presidency and the president of the United States on the floor of the Senate. And if you think these Issues are frivolous, the, the movement toward disbarring or taking away emeritus. Think of what happened to Ron Sullivan. Ron Sullivan, the first African-American, along with his wife, dean of a Harvard college, lost his job, was fired as dean because of who he represented, because he represented uh, Harvey Weinstein. And the students lied, lied to the administration and said that scared them, that frightened them, that made them feel unsafe. Nonsense. They didn't feel unsafe when the same professor represented a minority person who was accused of multiple murders. Uh, that didn't scare them. Having a lawyer living among them who represented murderers, trying to get murderers free, that didn't frighten them. But representing Harvey Weinstein, oh my God, how can you ever be a dean of a Harvard college if you have clients like that. It's just a return to the bad old days of McCarthyism. And in some respects, even worse, because it's a view reflected by a lot of young people who will be our future leaders. McCarthyism didn't have the kind of widespread support among future leaders. It was attacked and condemned by President Eisenhower by distinguished members of Congress, by deans of universities, by presidents of universities, by ordinary folks like my parents who hated communism, but they hated McCarthyism as much as they hated communism. 
But today we're hearing justifications. Well, you know, they have a point. Uh, why do we need a dean who represented somebody like Harvey Weinstein? Why do we need a professor emeritus who, who represented the president of the United States? What a terrible thing to do to represent the president of the United States on the floor of the Senate and successfully argue that it was unconstitutional to impeach him on grounds of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. Oh, my God, what a terrible thing to do. How could we have an emeritus professor who stood up and made those arguments on behalf of somebody like President Trump? And now we have a sitting member of Congress making motions, filing complaints with the five bar associations. I have to tell you, the bar associations ought to be looking at him and seeing whether he's misusing the complaint process for partisan political purposes. Again, you can be critical uh, of President Trump's efforts to go to the last uh, step and challenge all of his, uh, the election in the courts. I'm not critical uh, of that. Uh, I'm a liberal Democrat, uh, but I'm not critical of, of a conservative Republican president any more than I was critical of Al Gore, whose case I, I helped when he challenged the election back in, in 2000. There are two things that can come out of a challenge to the election, one of them very, very unlikely, and that is turning around the actual election. I'll explain why, and I have in the past explained why that's very unlikely under the circumstances. But the other positive thing that comes out of these challenges is that they are exposing some flaws in the system. They are exposing a problem in Pennsylvania that some counties allow mail-in voters to correct their ballots and other counties don't allow them to correct their ballots if they're flawed ballots. Um, that's a potential equal protection problem, at least according to the United States Supreme Court's decision in Bush versus Gore. It's certainly not a good situation to have some votes counted and identical votes, identically fixed, not counted, because of what county you, have to, you happen to be in. One person, one vote is very, very important. And to the extent that improper votes are counted, Proper votes get diluted. The power of the proper voter gets diluted when improper votes are counted. And so these uh, evidentiary attacks on the computer, I don't know whether there's any basis to them. I'm not a computer expert. But if there is a hearing in the courts and they do find glitches in the software or the hardware or anything else, that will improve the system for future elections. If we do find that uh, accepting mail-in ballots that were filed after the close of Election Day create problems. Maybe we're going to want to cure them. Maybe we're going to want to extend legislatively the time for voting so that people don't lose their vote because of a glitch from the post office. These are all issues that warrant detailed analysis by the courts, by the legislatures, and by the media. So let's not condemn the lawyers uh, you know, it was Shakespeare put into the mouth of his villain. First, let's kill the lawyers. And that's what all tyrannical regimes have done. Uh, Stalin and Hitler and Mao and Pol Pot. The first thing they did is kill the lawyers because they know that the lawyers will stand up for rights, for civil liberties, for civil rights, for the rights of the people. And that's the last thing that tyrants want. And so, no, I don't classify uh, Rep. Representative Bill Pascal, Pascrell, uh, among those evil tyrants, I, I, he's either an ignoramus, uh, he doesn't understand history, 
or he's so biased uh, politically and in a partisan way that he's prepared to neglect the rule of law and to forget history. Remember, it was Santayana who said, those who forget history are destined to repeat it. We do not want another McCarthyism in this country. And this representative is bringing McCarthyism. I've looked at the petitions that he's filed. They're nonsense. They're total nonsense. Uh, he just doesn't like the lawyers. He doesn't like the client. He doesn't like the arguments they're making. Let him file an amicus brief in the court on the merits, showing why the arguments are wrong. But the idea of taking the livelihood away from lawyers. Now, you know, Rudy Giuliani's not going to suffer from this. Uh, he's not practicing law on a daily uh, basis. Uh, and he has enough money to retire uh, from the practice of law any more than I would have been affected had I lost my emeritus professorship. It would have been a scandal. But, uh, but I worry about young lawyers who today will refuse to take on cases that are controversial, refuse to represent clients like Harvey Weinstein or the president of the United States. Uh, that's the purpose of McCarthyism, not only to punish the few who would be victimized by the McCarthyism itself, the way the congressman filed grievances against some dozens of, uh, of lawyers. The, the fear is that it will deter other lawyers. It will turn the American legal system into what we saw in, in, in China and in the Soviet Union and today in Iran, where lawyers are terrified to take cases that uh, are unpopular or politically incorrect or that might offend the government. Uh, the greatest barrier to tyranny is an independent bar, is lawyers who stand up for the rights of their clients, particularly the most unpopular clients. You know, I have one major criteria that I take, uh, consider when I decide whether to take a case. I get hundreds and hundreds of requests to take cases. I can't take any percentage of them. I can take only a tiny, tiny, small percentage. Uh, I only do, you know, a handful of cases uh, at any given time. And my major criteria is, is the person so unpopular, so hated, so despised that he really needs me to be his lawyer because he can't get other lawyers. The first case I ever took as a practicing lawyer when I was in my 20s um, was on behalf of a group of people who just couldn't get lawyers. They just couldn't get lawyers. Uh, back in the day, you know, uh, I was applauded for doing that. Today, I'm condemned for, for doing that. So one, one summary before we go to the many callers that we, we have uh, today, but uh, one summary point about where the uh, election challenges are going. I know that uh, Giuliani and his legal team are not only going to court, but they're meeting with state legislatures. Um, their goal is to try to get at least a couple of state legislatures uh, to um, send a slate of electors to Congress that's different from the slate of electors voted on by the voters of their state. That's happened before in the 19th century. Will it happen again? I don't know. Would it be a good thing? I don't think so. Um, if, you, if the legislature decided, say the Pennsylvania legislature, had decided six months ago, you know, we're, we're not happy about democracy. We don't think the people will pick the right electors, the right president. The Constitution gives us, the state legislature, the power to decide how electors are chosen. We're going to decide to choose them ourselves. We're going to pick them ourselves. 
in exactly the way that uh, the, the state legislatures picked senators for the first several years uh, of our constitutional history. And the people of Pennsylvania uh, uh, accepted that. They would never accept it. I think they would throw the bums out of office if a state legislature ever denied the people the right to pick electors. But under the Constitution, they could do that. But can they do it after the election has been held? I don't think the courts are going to accept that. I think the courts are going to say, that sounds too partisan. If they did it before, they'd be accountable to the people. The people could uh, seek new legislation, new legislators. They could challenge it in court. They could do all that. But to do it after the election was held just because you don't like the result would, I think, uh, uh, not be acceptable by the courts. So, again, you have to commend the lawyers for President Trump for their creativity. They're doing exactly the same thing that radical Democrat lawyers would do if the shoe were on the other foot. If the election had been closely lost by their candidate, the Democratic lawyers would be exactly the same thing. And I suspect some Republican congressmen might be moving for their disbarment. So, you know, hypocrisy is the coin of the realm. But, um, but let's call it out when we see it, whether we're calling it out on behalf of Democrats or on behalf of Republicans. So there'll be challenges. Some will succeed. Some will fail. Some will succeed theoretically, but fail practically. Some will fail both in courts of law and in the legislatures. Uh, I do think that on January 20th, we will see the inauguration of uh, President Joe Biden. Um, and, um, and I think we'll see it being accepted by the outgoing president. He may not concede. He may announce he's going to run again in 2024. That's his right. That's his right under the First Amendment and under our Constitution. He has the right to run for a second term. He wouldn't be the first president who would be elected to two terms separated by a term in the middle. I think it was Grover Cleveland who pulled off the same thing. And uh, Andrew Jackson, of course, when he was beaten in 1824, campaigned basically for four years, about the corrupt bargain that denied him the presidency and then won the presidency overwhelmingly four years later. So, you know, this is a work in progress and presidents and presidential candidates and the lawyers have the right to pursue all legal remedies. But I'm a legal analyst and I don't give you wishful thinking. I don't tell you what I think should happen. I tell you what I think will happen. Sometimes I tell you what I think should happen, but not based on wishful thinking, based on changing the law. But here I'm going to tell you what I think will happen. Um, there will be some small victories, but they will not be able to pull off the perfect storm. They will not be able to draw to the inside straight and get both the judiciary and the legislatures to rule in their favor and the numbers to be enough to overcome the margins of victory in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Georgia, in Arizona, and in Nevada. But in the end, this election will be remembered as well for how it showed that we can make the elections even better in years to come. Let's end with some positive things about this election. More people voted than ever before in the history of the United States um, and, and in a pandemic. That tells you something about the determination of Americans never, ever to forego democracy. The candidate who did not win uh, got more votes than any other candidate in history other than the candidate who, who, who did win. Um, was it a fair election? That's up to the people to decide after hearing 
all the evidence, but more voters voted than ever before. When you think back to the founding of this country in the early days when you had like one-tenth or less of the people who were in the country eligible to vote and even a smaller number actually voting, here you get over 150 million people voting for president of the United States. We are still the envy of every democracy in the world. So three cheers for, for democracy. Um, this was an election that brought out voters. People voted because they loved candidates, because they hated candidates, because they preferred one candidate over another. But very few people, percentage-wise, stayed home. And that's a very positive thing to say about both Republicans and Democrats. So let's now turn to your questions. Before we get to your questions, the last show when I talked about the pardon of General Flynn, uh, there was a mix-up. And the introduction said, I'm going to talk about the pardon of General Flynn. And then when you got to the show itself, it was about another subject that we had talked about last week. We fixed the glitch. So if you want to rehear what I said about uh, General Flynn, just go back. It's now all fixed. And you'll hear the headline saying President Trump was absolutely right to pardon General Flynn. And then you'll hear my analysis of why I think he was absolutely right. And you'll get the questions, uh, one of which was about uh, General Flynn. So apologize for the mix-up for those of you who listen to it early. Please keep listening early. There won't be any more mix-ups. We got it right. We fixed it. And so now let's turn to your questions on The Dirt Show. Our first call today is from John. I'm a retired public official and prosecutor four times in a 40-year career. And I wonder if you would be willing to comment in the context of the General Flynn case about Judge Sullivan's unethical, unprofessional, and in my view, unconstitutional behavior as a judge, passively, aggressively defying constitutional mandates of the Supreme Court on the dismissal of cases and the cover-up of the Court of Appeals in the D.C. Circuit permitting him to abuse his judicial discretion to the prejudice and detriment of General Flynn, the public interests, and the people of the United States. Thank you. Well, thanks. Um, as you know, um, I agree with the bottom line of what you said. I do think that uh, Judge Sullivan abused his constitutional authority and the limited role of judges. I wouldn't um, use some of the language you used. Uh, judge Sullivan is a good judge generally and uh, somebody who's done a lot of good things over his uh, career. And of course, the Court of Appeals originally rebuked him and then the Court of Appeals and Bank sent it back to him. I think that was wrong. Um, I think once you get the Justice Department agreeing with the defendant and saying, look, there's no case here. We're going to drop the prosecution. That's the end of the matter. The Constitution limits the power of the courts to cases and controversies, and there's no controversy when both sides agree. So I think that the, I think Judge Sullivan was wrong. He was wrong to appoint another former judge to be his lawyer. Uh, he was wrong to uh, question the Justice Department's um, uh, decision to drop the prosecution. It's not up to judges. That's up to prosecutors. And I think the Court of Appeals was wrong to 
allow Judge Sullivan to continue what I think was his political circus uh, down in the federal uh, district uh, court. So I'm glad that President uh, Trump uh, pardoned uh, General Flynn. By the way, President Trump tweeted uh, my statement that uh, it was absolutely right uh, to pardon him, tweeted the uh, uh, tweet, uh, retweeted the tweet about the show and about the show saying that um, President Trump was was correct. And um, so uh, at least there are two of us that agree with that. Okay, so here's our next caller. When you see what's going on now, obviously, um, with the new lawsuits, do you think that it's possible, or, or what would they do? Do they, do they weigh out what the possibilities are with uh, chaos everywhere? If, let's say, the election is overturned, given the fact that mainstream media is not um, reporting what is going on, in fact, they're censoring it again, so if, you know, if it's heard that the election's overturned, basically the majority of people are going to be blindsided. So, you know, then it's just going to be chaotic, obviously. Um, so do you think that they take that into consideration or, um, you know, because I, I, I think that regardless, if there is fraud, it should definitely be addressed. And, uh, yeah, I just wanted to see what you think about that. Thanks. That's a great question. Remember, the nine people who sit on the Supreme Court are nine human beings. They go home to their families. They watch television. They know what's going on in the real world. And yes, they do take into account the impact their decision might have on chaos and violence. Uh, when they decided to desegregate the schools back in 1954, they waited until they had a unanimous court so that they could speak with one voice because they knew there would be resistance, and there was. We know people were killed uh, in demonstrations that followed uh, the Supreme Court decision in 1954. I know I went down south uh, in the early 1960s and saw with my own eyes. I didn't see any killings. I didn't see any uh, direct uh, violence, but I certainly saw the potential for violence, and it was an eye-opening experience for me. I trained for that Howard University in Washington, D.C. trained as an observer to go and, and watch the civil rights demonstration. So the court does take that into consideration. I think before they would overturn an election, uh, they would have to be so certain and so clear and, and they'd have to be so correct on the law that there'd be a heavy burden on those who would seek to overturn the election. So let's turn now to our next call. Hi, Alan. My name is Sam from Los Angeles. My question for you is, What's your opinion on Edward Snowden getting the pardon from President Trump? Love the show. Thank you very much. Well, thanks. I, I appreciate the call. Uh, let's lay out the difference between Snowden on the one hand and, uh, say, uh, WikiLeaks on the other. You know, I'm partly involved in representing or consulting with uh, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, so I don't come to this unbiased, but there's a big difference between Snowden and WikiLeaks. Snowden stole the secrets. I mean, he committed a crime. There's no doubt about that. Manning, Snowden, Ellsberg, these were the thieves. These were the people who had security clearance, went and, and, and committed the crime. Jonathan Pollard. Um, uh, there's no doubt that he committed a crime. Uh, the question in his case was, was the sentence excessive. Um, but, but the people who actually stole the material 
have no First Amendment defense. That's civil disobedience. Uh, you know, you might think they were right or wrong. How God will judge them, I leave to powers greater than my own. Uh, but the question then is, what about the people who publish the material? And the Supreme Court basically said in the Times case, in the Washington Post case, that um, there's a big difference between publishing stolen material and stealing the material. So Snowden falls into the category of the thief, the person who stole the material. And so I think it's a much, much harder case for uh, pardon or, or commutation than, uh, for example, the, the pardon or commutation that Manning and, and, and others have received. So closer case, harder decision. Our next call is from Mike in New Orleans. Uh, Professor Darshwitz, I'm curious to know if you think the takings clause of the Constitution could be applied to uh, lockdowns from COVID uh, in shutting, forcibly shuttering uh, some businesses for public health. Thanks. Love the show. It's a great question. I've done some litigation on the takings clause. It's a very important part of our Constitution that's often neglected. Basically, it says, you know, the government can't take your property from you. Property is really one of the fundamental bases of liberty. The government can't take your property from you unless uh, it's in the public interest and unless it gives you just compensation. Now, uh, they're not taking your store away from you when they order you to shut it down, but they're taking away your business. And whether or not the Constitution uh, gives uh, businesses the constitutional right to claim uh, the same that would happen under eminent domain is a hard question. I don't think the courts would go there. But whether a legislature should compensate businesses that have had to close down because of COVID, I think, yeah, I think there's a good argument uh, for that. Uh, you know, some people have taken advantage of this. One of the biggest law firms in, in the United States, Boy Schiller, a firm I've had my problems with, as you know, uh, apparently, uh, although there are billionaires in the firm, apparently took money from ordinary people by demanding the government pay them. Uh, that was outrageously immoral if it happened, as, as reported. But the little mom-pop store uh, that can't survive without business, and if it's told it has to shut down, the government ought to make good on that because they're being shut down in the public interest. They're, shut, they're being shut down to help all of us. So whether or not the takings clause of the Constitution technically applies, it seems to me the most common sense and morality requires that people who have been forced to shut down, who would otherwise be making enough money to survive, particularly people who are operating on the margins, should be compensated for their economic losses. Next call is from Bill in California. My state, California, cannot provide me with proof that my vote counted, that my vote counted correctly, and that my vote was not nullified by any illegal vote. Can I force California to conduct a detailed forensic audit of every single vote counted? And two, how can I legally refuse to pay my California state income taxes as well as my federal income taxes on the basis that I have no proof that my vote for my democratically elected government actually counted? Thank you. Well, let me start with your second question. The answer is clear. You cannot legally refuse to pay taxes because you think your votes weren't uh, counted. 
even if your votes weren't counted, you have to pay your taxes. So let's assume that you were convicted of a felony and you didn't have a right to vote. Or let's assume you're under 18 and you don't have the right to vote, but you've earned a lot of money. You have an obligation to pay taxes. The two are unrelated. Uh, if you don't pay taxes, you've committed a crime. And uh, if you want to claim civil disobedience, that's a moral claim, not a legal claim. As far as requiring the state to count every vote, uh, there are laws in the state. Uh, you get to count every vote uh, if there's a recount, if the criteria for recount are met. But just because you don't think your vote was counted doesn't give you the right to have a multi, multi, multi-million dollar uh, recount. I do think states ought to have ways of validating the votes. I voted by mail this year, and immediately uh, my wife, who knows how to do these things, checked online and told me, yeah, your votes have been counted. Our votes have been counted. We sent them in by mail, and about a week later, we were able to check online that the vote had been counted. I think every state should have that. And every state should also have uh, hand-counted uh, uh, paper ballot backups so that if there is a challenge to the computer, if there's a challenge to the mail-in, if there's a challenge to anything else, we have a fail-safe. We have a way of determining whether or not the votes were properly counted. And they also, every counting should be videotaped. We shouldn't have to depend on poll watchers and whether you're six feet away or 10 feet away or 12 feet away, particularly during a pandemic. Let's videotape all the counting. Videotaping is a very cheap process. And, you know, you can erase the tape and reuse it uh, if there are no challenges. But if there are challenges, then you'd have uh, hard proof as to whether the proper counting occurred. So, uh, I think that's the answer rather than don't pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. Okay, here's our next call. I just don't get how you defended Jeffrey Epstein so vehemently, and you still stand by it. You've seen other crimes come out. You've seen the proof. Can you just explain your thinking there and just go more into why you felt so compelled to defend him and take that case? Thank you. First of all, I don't know how to defend anybody other than vehemently. That's what I do. I defend my clients zealously. I try to get the best deal I can. I'm like a doctor. Uh, when a doctor performs surgery, he doesn't do second best. He does the best surgery he can perform. If I take a case, then I decide to do it in the most vigorous uh, way I, I can. When I decided to represent Epstein, the only charges against him were that he got a couple of massages and that one or two of the people may have been technically under the age of 18, even though they showed him um, uh, birth certificates or, or driver's licenses that showed they were over the age of 18. That was the case I defended. There weren't that hundreds of people or dozens of people. There were a handful of people, and there was a good defense. And uh, the fact that the prosecutor accepted our recommendation initially in 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 um, in Florida demonstrates there was a, a good defense and then I defended him federally and the prosecutors agreed with the offer we made after a lot of tough and hard negotiations I haven't stood by Epstein lately once I learned uh, what he had actually probably done I terminated my relationship with him um, but of course I had to take his phone calls I was his lawyer you can't just abandon a client but um, I do not defend his actions in any way. And that case fit the criteria of cases that I take. Somebody extremely unpopular. Uh, he thought the deal I made was not a particularly good one. He fired me and he wouldn't pay my legal fees because he thought he could have gotten a better deal. Well, uh, it turned out he did get a better deal. But then 
all the criticism came up and uh, he got indicted again in New York and that led to his death. So um, I'm proud of the fact that I represented somebody who was charged with a crime. I will continue to do that. I defended people uh, who have committed uh, or have been accused of committing a murder. I defended a kid who was accused of lining up nine Buddhist nuns and monks on the floor and shooting them in cold blood and turned out he probably didn't do it. So, um, you know, these are the kinds of things criminal defense lawyers do. We don't presume our clients guilty. We presume them innocent the way the Constitution says. And lawyers should not be attacked for who they represent. Abraham Lincoln represented some pretty despicable people, as did John Adams when he defended the killers of in the Boston Massacre. And, of course, many, many great lawyers over time, Edward Bennett Williams and, and so many others, have defended people who are extraordinarily unpopular. If you don't think that we defense lawyers should defend people who are charged with serious crimes, what's the alternative? What would we do? We'd send them to jail without a trial? Uh, that's Alice in Wonderland. That's the Soviet Union. That's China. It's not the United States of America. So I'm very proud of the fact that I'm a defense lawyer who defends all of my clients vigorously and ethically. Let's turn now to our final call today. Hi, Alan. I'm Shulam calling from Brooklyn. And first of all, I want to compliment on your show. I really enjoy it. Um, and here's my question. President Trump tweeted today that Section 230 is a national security threat, that it immediately needs to be addressed and terminated, probably paraphrasing. What's your opinion on that? And my second question is, if Congress doesn't have the proper political will for some reason to address it good enough, can Section 230 be challenged as unconstitutional if this is the gateway under which companies like Twitter, Facebook, and Google and the likes are hiding behind? Great questions from, from Brooklyn. Uh, I don't like Section 230, the way it's been applied and enforced. Just for those who don't know what it is, 230 gives immunity from defamation lawsuits to platforms uh, like Twitter. So if somebody goes on Twitter and said, you know, Dershowitz did terrible things, uh, uh, I can't sue uh, uh, Twitter. I could sue the person who said it if the person has his name, um, but I can't sue Twitter. If a person said Dershowitz stole a billion dollars from poor people in the neighborhood, I can't sue. Uh, there's an exemption. Um, now, that exemption makes sense as long as the um, uh, platform is merely a platform, as long as the platform isn't making decisions about what to publish, what not to publish, uh, what, how to present it, as long as it's not acting like a newspaper. Remember, the New York Times said Dershowitz stole a billion dollars. I could sue the New York Times and own them, um, but I can't sue uh, Twitter. So that's what 230 does, and it has to be amended. It must be amended to give the platform the choice. You have a choice. If you want to be a real platform, you don't make decisions about what to censor and what is allowed on. You're just like a taxi cab. You have to take the person to the location if he has the fare and can pay you. Um, the same thing should be true of any platform. But once the platform decides, well, you know, we don't believe this, we're going to attach a little note saying this is not believable. 
something else is believable, then you're acting like a newspaper. Then you're the New York Times and you shouldn't be exempt from, from defamation. So I agree that there has to be a change in 230. How we deal with social media and the Internet is the great First Amendment challenge of the 21st century. Uh, should we deal with them by government censorship? No. Uh, should the antitrust laws be applicable to them? Sure, but we have to make sure that it doesn't constrain free speech. Should they be subject to the usual rules of defamation? Yeah, if they're acting like a newspaper. But these are hard, hard, hard questions, and they have to be addressed rationally first by Congress and then by the courts. So thank you. Great, great questions this morning. Uh, a real academic seminar, uh, questions ranging from the presidential power to pardon to the First Amendment. And I'm looking forward to your questions for the next Dirt Show. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.